Hey, hey, Austin, I, I got a pitch for you. Mm-hmm. What if Taxi Driver was a comedy? What if we took Paul Blart Mall Cop and made him a bipolar vigilante off his medication? What if we took the lovable stoner Seth Rogen and made him an angry racist with delusions of grandeur? <laughs> and along the way, we make jokes about mental health, date rape, and alcoholism. Doesn't that sound great? It sounds like a recipe for a winner. We watched Observe and Report. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Sewer, an independent filmmaker and photographer who shockingly does not think Taylor Swift's new song encourages domestic violence. I think it encourages people to financially reward terrible music. And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc. And I have no fucking clue what you're talking about. Fill me in. What's the deal? Uh, she's got a song. It's called, but the, the chorus is like, look what you made me do. Yeah. Um, it, and, it sounds yeah. like, uh, it sounds like the right said Fred, I'm too sexy. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like people are saying that she's encouraging domestic violence. Cause that's what like husbands say to battered wives, you know, they hit them and then they say, look what you made me do. You know? So, so Taylor Swift, that was clearly Taylor Swift's message. She said, I, I want to encourage domestic violence. How could someone even extract that meaning from that? I mean, I'm all about intertextuality and shit, but come on. Oh, you know, Austin, it's just because you fail to see the social cues and the codes that are hidden within all of these things. Apparently. And, uh, and uh, you know, welcome back, Austin, after a week without you. And uh, apologies, this episode will be going up late, but um, we've uh, been struggling last couple of weeks with um, some busy schedule changes and stuff like that, but we will be back to normal from now on. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so this week in review, we will be discussing It and Wind River. Uh, In trending topic, we will be talking about Austin's man crush, James Franco, (laughs) who just released the trailer for his new film, The Disaster Artist. And finally, we'll be discussing the 2009 Seth Rogen quote-unquote comedy film, (laughs) Observe and Report. Okay, so um, Austin, I don't know if you you realize this while watching Observe and Report this week, but uh, they filmed it in New Mexico. Oh, did they? I'm claiming this is a New Mexican film, okay. you know, despite the fact the film has, you know, nothing outwardly about New Mexico about it. I'm still claiming it because fuck knows we don't have that much stuff. So yeah, this, this week, bad. they're about yeah, the same. Oh, yeah. So uh, in honor of that, I am cl- I am going to be grading the films this week in how New Mexican they are. Okay. So we're back to the abstract concepts that you can interpret and read into, which I know you love. Cool. So I got a question because I think of New Mexico as being very Tex-Mex. So I think of like chili and tacos and things like that, but in a very particular Tex-Mex rather than like Southern Californian style. Yeah, well, we're like – we're like Tex-Mex, but we're like on like the artier side of it. It's like – it's like because you know we're we're the blue state in that whole sort of Southwest setup, so okay. you know we're all where all the hippies went. Oh, so you're hippie cowboys? Yeah, we're hippie cowboys. Hippie we're hicks. cowboys. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Austin, did you ever watch the miniseries of It? Um, I did, and I remember when I was a child that opening scene when the little boy gets the boat lost down the drain scared yeah. the living shit out of me when you're down here you'll float too <laughs> <laughs> yeah you gotta love a little tim curry yeah um well i mean okay so this is kind of uh th- this is the brand spanking new 
all singing, all dancing, bells and whistles, uh, remake of, well, I mean, reimagining of the book, um, right. which obviously the miniseries was based off, the Stephen King book. Um, and it only adapts half of the book. So okay. you know how the miniseries had them as adults and, you know, then it would flash back to them as kids. And that's what the book does. It kind of moves between like them as adults, them as kids. Yes. This one is just the kids. So it's okay. about a group of 12 and 13 year old kids living in a small town in Maine, this time in 1989, whereas the book is set in the 50s, um, that are menaced by a supernatural force that takes the appearance of a clown called Pennywise. Uh, the entity feeds on children's fear before devouring them, so the group must band together and fight it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, you know, I've watched the miniseries. I have it on DVD. I didn't watch it till I was in my twenties. Like, okay, it was one of those ones that I bought out of like a bargain bin, you know, and I watched it, and I found it entertaining in a kitschy fashion. Like, right. I never found it like good. Or scary, but I was kind of, it's almost like it was almost a, a cultural artifact of its time. You know, it's kind of fascinating, this three-hour ABC miniseries where they said, hey, let's take this incredibly violent and dark book and try and adapt it for primetime television. Um, sure. Plus, it's got, like, weird things, like the kid from, like, I think it's, like, the second never-ending story is one of the kids, and then Seth Green is one of the other kids. Um, and then like the mom from Smallville is in it and, uh, and John Ritter's in it as well. And, you know, some, 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 some recognizable faces. Of course you have Tim Curry, who's, you know, as Pennywise, the clown. And, um, yeah. So looking at this, this is like taking everything up like 10 notches. I mean, it, it, it looks amazing. Like it's filmed gorgeously. Um, you know, the kid, the child acting is brilliant. It's like the best child acting next to Stranger Things, you know, and there's definitely a very kind of Stranger Things vibe to this, which makes sense because Stranger Things is obviously very heavily influenced by Stephen King. Um, Andy Machete, who I think is how you say his name, is the director previously made one other horror film called Mama, which I've not seen. Um, but that the one with, uh, who's in that? Jessica Chastain. Oh, Jessica, Jessica Chastain. Chastain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I did see that. Um, okay, yeah, I know what you're. Did you like about. it? Oh God, I don't remember. I I don't I don't remember being either overwhelmed or underwhelmed. So I, all I remember about it was that Guillermo del Toro was like an executive producer on it, and yeah. I know it's it's definitely got its defenders. I'm not totally sure. It's like it's one of those ones that I think some people like for some of the ideas and what it was trying to do, but I'm not totally sure I've ever heard anyone say like it's actually in and of itself an amazing film. Right. Right. And I mean, I would kind of be inclined to give some of that criticism to this it. It's it's a weird one because I'm coming into this very, very aware of the storyline. So I know everything that's going to happen in it. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at the craft and the craft. I liked, I liked a lot of what was done. I like, I thought the performances were great. I thought it is some of the best child acting I've seen. Um, especially the girl who plays Barbara. I think is the character's name. She is really fantastic. And I think she's about like 14, but she looks like she's, she's going to be a star. She's one of those people who you look at and you're just kind of like, she's got it's Beverly. Sorry. She's got great presence and she just seems like, yep, she's just born to be a star. Hmm. So no, I think, and I, and I, and I think a lot of the other kids are well cast. They're great. I think, you know, they handle the scene like the this the iconic scene of um, Pennywise down the storm drain, kind of uh, 
you know, beckoning Georgie to come and then telling him, you know, he'll float to all of that. All of that stuff's handled really well. Um, the criticism I've seen it, and I'm inclined to agree, is that the scare scenes aren't anything particularly great. That they sort of fall more into the general studio horror film tropes of kind of big noises and jumps and things yeah. like that. But I kind of found that fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed the film a lot. Um, I had a really good time watching it. I thought it was really, really nicely put together. And yeah, I, I mean, it's one of those ones that I think I for so long thought it was going to be a disaster looking at it. Mm looking at the production happening. And then I was really optimistic when I saw the trailers because I really liked the look of the trailers. And, you know, and I I enjoyed because and I think it's part of the fact that I enjoyed those kids so much that I think I was willing to forgive a lot of the things that I've heard other people criticize, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but at the same time, don't really find were much of a problem for me. Okay. Yeah, I have heard some of the criticisms too. Uh, Bradley, you know, a past guest on the show, two-time guest, posted an article on social media talking about the biggest problem with it and it had to do with the fact that it did only handle half of the uh, – it only handled half of the story from the original novel and um, and a couple other related type of criticisms. The thing that I have heard – from adaptation or about both adaptations now is that it kind of m- seems to miss a certain essence from the novel and that there was a creepiness rather than a jump scary element that is not translating into either of the visual uh, adaptations is that something that you would agree with as well I suppose I could I could understand that to a certain degree cuz I think like ultimately this is a 35 million dollar studio product um right. you know i i and i think it's very much what that is and i think it's a very high class sure. well made you know piece of studio product um and I, you know i'm glad that it's r rated i feel like i mean you know i've heard people criticizing it that it pulls its punches i mean if a film that starts off with you know a six-year-old kid getting his arm ripped off is uh you know pulling its punches then right. I, I kind of feel like we're you have unrealistic expectations of what you think, you know, a studio film is going to be. But I, you know, and do I think there could have been some weirder indie, you know, lower budget version of this made that like is more about creeping dread and existential, you know, fear that, yeah, yeah, certainly I I do. I'm not sure that's what this movie was ever trying to be. And I think one of the difficulties is that because it for a long time had Carrie Fukunaga attached to it, who um, did true detective and uh, beast of the Southern wild, no, sorry, beast of no nation, beast of no nation. Sorry. Um, It means that I think people have this. What if, quality with it yeah. so bradley bradley's thing to me was saying oh well i read the carrie fukunaga script and i kind of said to him look i don't give a fuck what the carrie fukunaga script was because that film's never going to get made so what the fuck do i care about some potential movie that could have happened i'm looking at the movie that i actually watched and i the movie i watched i enjoyed yeah okay cool so what is your uh new mexican rating for it the new mexican rating is a roadrunner watching a lobos game at the pit. I don't even know what the fuck that means. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a New Mexican race. What are the Lobos? The Lobos are the UNM team. So okay. the pit is okay. uh, pit is actually a, a, a pretty famous basketball arena okay. in Albuquerque where uh, the Lobos played. I went there several times. Uh, saw the uh, the Lady Lobos play basketball. Lady Lobos. 
Yeah, Lady Lobos. And, of course, a Roadrunner is the bird of New Mexico. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, look at that. Okay. Okay. So, so you know, it's, we got a little inside baseball going here. I dig it. I dig it. It's cultural experience, too. All right, what's next? Next is Wind River. Okay. Uh, the new film by my boy, Taylor Sheridan. Yeah, so I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. I haven't seen it yet, but I will be seeing this in the theater because he is one of the more exciting writers in Hollywood oh, yeah. right now. So this is his directorial debut. This is his directorial debut. So basically the film revolves around a young native woman being found in the middle of the snowy wilderness on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. Uh, she's discovered by a tracker played by Jeremy Renner, who is the former husband of one of the women from the reservation and also happens to be friends with the dead woman's father. Okay. Uh, the local tribal police have very limited resources, so they call in the closest FBI agent, who is a sort of in-over-her-head young woman played by Elizabeth Olsen, who is completely ill-prepared for the culture and the world that she finds on the reservation, and so needs Jeremy Renner's help in tracking down the murderers. Um, so, basically... I think I sort of said to you, like, back when we were talking about, uh, this film came up when we were talking about Sundance and Cannes, and I just sort of said, like, this film looked like it was perfect for me. Like, right. uh, it was just, like, like my perfect film. <laughs> and I came out of this film with being like, yep, I fucking loved every bit of that. Like, wow. it's just, like, a movie just, like, whatever it is, Taylor Sheridan's got my number and he fucking knows how to give it to me, you know. I <laughs> yeah. mean, I, I, I think, I think Jeremy Renner's flat out amazing in it. I think he has. I think this is probably the best he's been since the Hurt Locker. Um, okay. I think this is probably better than the Hurt Locker. Wow. And he is just sort of like he does. He's got that sort of like, I don't know what it is. He's got a very sort of interesting face, and mm. I think he emotes really, really well with his eyes and. Like, Taylor Sheridan is such a fucking good writer that he can just have two dudes standing on a porch talking to each other for five minutes, and it's so engrossing mm. and just so fascinating. But it's not, like, overly wordy. It's not, like, flowery. It's two guys talking kind of guy conversation, but it's emotionally relevant and sort of deep and meaningful. And I just... There's a scene in it where Jeremy Renner just explains what it's like to lose a daughter and it is like it's not oscar clip like you know it's not like he's yeah. like crying his eyes out it's not overly dramatic he's explains it in this really straightforward way but it feels like you're just being told so much mm. it's just like the world of his like inner inner turmoil is opening up to you um, I think it's also fascinating in the way it deals with violence. It's very blunt and shocking and brutal. Um, I really feel like it doesn't pull punches in that. And I've been told by several people who've seen it, especially women, that there's a scene they find incredibly uncomfortable and disturbing in it. Mm. Um, but it's meant to be uncomfortable and disturbing. Um, I, I love the way it gets into procedure because one of the, the interesting elements of it is, of course, it's taking place on a reservation. Um, and, um, I don't know, cause uh, do they really, do they have reservations in California? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, um, New Mexico is filled with reservations. Uh, we got a lot of them. So yeah, there's basically, there's, there's quite a few in California. I used to go in fact, hang out at Pachanga, uh, it's an Indian reservation that I used to hang out at all the time cause gambling is legal there. And then back yeah. before mixed martial arts was legal in California, 
people used to fight on the reservations. So yeah, we got yeah. we got so many Indian casinos. In yeah, you New probably Mexico. have more, but yeah, yeah, we got we got a ton. Like you, New Mexico. Like if you're going down the highway, you're going to come across quite a few. We had like, uh, we had like we had a. I I just remember because like, you'd hear like the advertisements for them on the radio all the time. I remember I saw George Carlin at um at uh the Indian reservation between Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Oh yeah. Um, but. There's a really interesting mystery writer from New Mexico called um, Tony Hillerman, okay. um, and he writes uh, mystery novels set around um, Indian reservations. Um, and they get into a lot um, that the reservations have their own you know, sort of legal system to mm-hmm. a certain degree, which is – it's kind of weird and vague because to a certain extent it's self-governing but also still has to adhere to a lot of the federal laws of the United States. So, for instance, in this case, um, the woman is found dead on in the reservation. She's a member of the reservation, so this falls within the jurisdiction of the tribal police. However, uh, the sort of sheriff of the tribal police, who's played by Graham Greene, who's really nice to see it again because, you know, Graham Greene was your sort of go-to uh, Indian actor for a long time. Hmm. Um, he basically, uh, he's like, he's got like six staff, like to cover like this giant area and they're not in any way set up for actually like investigating a murder. So, but the state police, it's not their jurisdiction. They can't come in. So they have to, for a murder case, they have to bring in the FBI. The problem is, is this is Wyoming. There's no fucking FBI in Wyoming. So they have to fly in the closest FBI agent, which is like in Las Vegas. So, you know, so, and this woman, she's, you know, young, she's completely ill prepared she knows nothing about the reservation so it's mm. like a but it's it's really fascinating how it gets into the procedure and the minutia of how these things work and the fault and difficulties that happen within this legal setup of the reservation and um it's also got um so i'm gonna have to look up his name for a second um it's also got uh it's also got um Gil Birmingham, who, if you remember, played um, he played uh, Jeff Bridges' partner in Hell or High Water. Oh, yeah. And he is also really, really fucking good. And he's the father of the um, the dead woman. Okay. And it's just like it's just everybody in it is just fucking given just. 110% 110% great fucking performance and it's just it's just really engrossing and brilliantly executed. However, if I have one criticism for it, this is Ter- Taylor Sheridan's first time out as a director. He has not I would say really found his stride as a clear visual stylist. Like, and that's, a, that's the thing is like you, you have David McKenzie um, with Hell or High Water you have um Denny Villeneuve um, with um, Sicario, both of them are really, really visually well executed films. This feels much more ramshackle. This doesn't. This this has a really shaggy quality to it that doesn't really feel like it's quite got the steady directorial hand of those other two films. Okay. So that's the only thing that I would say kind of lets it down a bit. But the script and the performances are so fucking good; it doesn't matter. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I liked the film. You liked what the I'm film. saying. Yeah. So what would be your New Mexican status for? Okay. So this? the New Mexican status is Smokey the Bear in a Georgia O'Keeffe gallery inside an Indian casino while holding chili chili ristras while Breaking Bad plays on the TV nearby and the shins are pay, playing over the loudspeaker. 
Uh, I'm assuming the shins are from New Mexico. Yeah, they formed in Albuquerque. And what is a chili? What chili ristra? It's like you see them all over New Mexico, and what they are is like they're um, basically all of these chilies that are hung and left to dry out in the sun, Mm -hmm. and then you sort of grind them up. And people like, for instance, like when we lived in New Mexico, we had some, and my mom would then like bring them and like put them into like green chili stew and stuff like that Ooh, that sounds good i'm fucking hungry. you see them you see you see you see it like everywhere like they are like pretty much the official decoration of new mexico <laughs> okay. and it's like it's like when we were like we, like when we were at christmas we had like a chili reef that we put on the door right and we had like uh you know we, it, chili is everywhere in new mexico it's like <laughs> it, it is basically we were the you know you know we have an official state question do you know what that is? Uh, where's the chili? No, it's uh, red or green. Oh, <laughs> I dig it. There were a lot of things we could have talked about this week. We could have talked about Star Wars ditching another fucking director, but fuck that. You know, I don't feel like we got anything new to say about that. And then, like, no. And then, you know, what, what are we we're talking about? We could talk about the buzz out of TIFF and all that sort of stuff. But I, I thought, you know what, no, let's 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 do something fun. Let's talk about motherfucking James Franco with a weird voice directing a movie that shockingly has some Oscar buzz. Los Angeles, everybody wants Just, to be this make star. you feel like home you have to be the right best. now? Yeah, it does. Los Angeles, everybody wants to be a star. I mean, what if they laugh at me? You, man, His accent, from what I understand, is fucking perfect. I yeah. want to feel that, too. I don't care. I'll do it. So you know, he's writhing around on the ground in acting class. That makes yeah, me miss acting classes. <laughs> <laughs> I will be famous. The thing we'll is, is if you Watch grow up in the go. industry as an actor in any way, all of this stuff that they're, that they're kind of like hyper-stylizing, yeah. isn't that far no, off from no. the reality. There's so we many cameos in this trailer too, though. Like how it has like yeah, Judd right, Apatow yeah. there is like the guy who tells him you're never gonna, you, you're, you're never gonna succeed, right? See, I didn't, like, I didn't know that he and Greg Sestero were buddies that wrote this because they were like, "Fuck it, we want to be famous, so we'll just make our own movie." I kind of thought it, I, I didn't know that they were buddies beforehand. Oh, no, yeah, like, the thing is, like, too, like, as far as I understand, he was kind of, like, he was really drawn to Tommy in acting class, because, like, Tommy would just didn't give a fuck. He would just, like, leave it all on the on the, on the stage, if you, you know what I mean? And, like, he was, like, he had, like, kind of, like, a confidence issue, so he, like, really admired how Tommy was just fearless. Yeah. He'd go crazy. It's like I'm I'm actually kind of surprised at how kind of serious this kind of looks as well, if you know what I mean. It's like there's that little part of me that expected it to be more like a like an Apatow or Seth Rogen comedy. But it's like I kind of like how much it looks like Franco's like taking it seriously. I disagree. Yeah. We are going to Well, I heard an interview with him where he actually said that he approached this role. In the same way that he approached James Dean. I'm laughing because the sex scene did. I am what I am, just in the trailer. Yeah, I do like that line. She's like, he knows where her vagina is, right? He's like, he's like, I am where I am, just do the scene. I am where I am. I am where I am. Oh, God. Okay. 
So yeah, so um, if you are not aware, The Disaster Artist is the story of Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero, who were behind the infamous movie The Room, which has kind of become known as the worst film ever made. Like, it's like, it's kind of, it used to be Plan 9 from Outer Space, and this has kind of become like the new cultural touchstone of like, what is like, the worst film ever. Like, even beyond, say, something like Troll 2 or Birdemic, like, there's something that is like, just fascinatingly unique in how awful and weird The Room is. But it's like, and I think the thing that this film looks to sort of be touching on as well is the idea that it's part of the endearing quality of why the film is so awful is because it's made entirely in earnest. Like, nobody was trying to ironically make this film. They genuinely, like, Tommy was genuinely trying to make a, like, a serious emotional drama. Right. now, And it just does not work. After the widespread mocking of the film, he has shifted his tone, and both he and Greg, well, in particular Tommy, I I guess Greg sometimes shifts. Well, I think think actually Greg was... But, Greg at least implies that he knew the whole time the film wasn't going was, was a bad film. Like he he believe he liked he was he was friends with Tommy and so he felt loyalty to Tommy, but he never thought the film was going to be any good. Right. Whereas Tommy has uh after the fact tried to claim that it was supposed to be a satire. The, yeah. That the whole thing was very tongue in cheek and self-aware. And yeah. I mean, I love the fact that he can make money trying to do that, but nah, dude. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> nah, I'm, dude. I'm, I'm interested too because I mean, in so many ways, I think this film that they're they're making is a film that's a story about being someone in L.A. You know, it's yeah. that being on the cusp, being on the outside of this kind of like grand, you know, this grand dream, and sort of trying to make it yourself and trying to find right. your own way into it. And, I mean, also, I mean, even the story of how this movie became, like, a cultural phenomenon is essentially kind of also kind of an L.A. story because that is that's, – that's kind of how it became big was in L.A., yeah. these people kind of putting on these screenings of it and it just achieving this kind of cultural – phenomenon and now now here in london at the prince charles they they show it like once a month like yeah i mean and it sells out i bet every single time oh yeah well they had they had tommy and greg here like about a month ago doing A Q&A with it like i mean that's what tommy does now (laughs) he tours around all of these screenings of the room uh just like giving talks on how he made the worst film ever made yeah and um i watched an interview where the the interviewer was saying, oh, director, writer, co-star, and then listed all these things of the room. And Tommy was like, oh, you're forgetting one thing. I also am the, the co-creator of Neighbors and Best Friends. And he lists all these other films that he's done. So I was like, oh, I know Neighbors, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But I was like, Best Friends, huh? I'm curious what that is. And it's another film with him and Greg Sestero. Yeah, yeah, because they just <laughs> did a screening of it recently. They did like a double bill. They did a screening of It and The Room and to- and in the Prince Charles and Tommy and uh, Greg were here for that. Okay, yeah. I mean, I saw the trailer and 
you would think, I would hope that Greg, after 15 years, would get a little better acting, or maybe that Tommy would, but he, they, they haven't really. That's not what they're going to be well, known for in their I lives. I think the problem with it, though, is a little bit like, okay, so it's like, if you look at, say, the difference between, say, Birdemic and Birdemic 2, mm-hmm. Bird, in, in the first Birdemic, it's just a terrible movie. It is a person who's trying their hardest to make a good movie and just failing at it miserably, <laughs> and the people can't act, and and it's like and it, and it ends up getting this kind of like midnight screening cultural relevance where people have their bits that they find the funniest and the most ridiculous and stuff like that so then when he goes to make birdemic 2 he tries to recreate the bad thing so it's not a bad filmmaker trying in earnest to make something good it's a bad filmmaker who's now trying to make something ironically bad and it doesn't like it it doesn't it it doesn't work anymore so yeah. that's kind of like why I don't really have much interest in seeing anything else Tommy does. I mean, I've I've only seen The Room once. I saw it on my own, which is a terrible way to watch it. And so I've kind of yeah. always wanted to actually go to it and experience it as a phenomenon. Because watching it on my own is just really boring. Yeah. But if you go and you watch it with a crowd of people where, you know, you, I think there's probably something there as to how you – as to the entertainment value of it. Sure. I mean there are certain films that are meant to be communal experiences, you know, and this is clearly one of them, 100%. Even if you're just at home with a group of friends – then you'll still kind of get a little bit of that experience. But you have to watch it with people because it's about laughing and it's about being a part of this shared experience where we mock this terrible movie, you know? And uh, it might sound a little bit almost nihilistic, but it kind of is uh, the sort of perfect exemplar of nihilistic postmodern cultural experience, you know? But it's interesting. So I actually dated a girl in L.A. who's – an actor, I guess you could call her. And she was in Tommy Wiseau's TV series called Neighbors. And she recounted some funny stories about him and his directorial style. Now, she's from Liverpool originally, Mm. okay? She's from Liverpool. Now, he would – and he's not from England. Uh, What is he like? Well, nobody knows where he's from. Yeah, he's got the He's still a mystery. Like, nobody knows how old he is. Nobody knows where he's from. Like, he's – you know, he's – nobody even really knows where he got the money to make the room. It's like it's all yeah. kind of a mystery. Yeah, who who fucking knows? He probably because like the room was like family. the room's budget was like seven or eight million or something like that. And even in like the book, apparently Greg Sestero still doesn't have an answer for where he got this <laughs> money to make the room. Yeah, I was wondering that too. Actually, when I was watching the Disaster Artist trailer, um, so I, I have no idea. I mean, now you know where he gets the money from because of all of these sold out yeah. shows, and it's become a cultural phenomenon. But. Apparently, she would speak with her Liverpoolian accent, and he would say, "Like, no, that's not how English people talk. This is how people. Hmm. This is how English people talk." And he would like yeah. try to like then like mimic how his idea of an English person. And she'd be like, "I'm fucking from England, dude. Like, I know, I know how my people. I just talk how I talk." Yeah. And then uh, there was another English dude, and he dressed him up in like a flat cap and like uh, uh, like a. Oh, what's the jacket with like the patch sleeves? Like a tweed. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Like you a the tweed. tweed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was like, that's how English people look. Like, that was just uh, apparently he's just a But really that's, but, that, it, but you can dude. see that in the room too, where he's like, this guy, he's like just all American guy. He wears like cut off sleeves and he, he throws the, <laughs> he throws a football, you know? It's like, <laughs> right, right. It's, it's like he, he, he doesn't. You know, it's, it's, it's like that fascinating thing of The Room is almost a film that is like an alien trying to mimic human existence. So have you 
actually have you actually like been to like a screening of the room or anything yeah yeah i've seen it in la a couple of times actually and what did you find like group experience like oh that's that's what you're supposed to do it was great i mean i went one time and i was drunk and i went another time and i was high so i mean i'm sure that enhanced the experience but um i thought it was great I, that's the way you're supposed to see it um i wouldn't even sit at home like even if my girl were like hey let's sit at home and watch the room i'd be like no let's not let's wait I'd be like, let's wait until it's showing at a at a theater. But it's it's funny too, though, because it's one of those films where, like, even though I've never, I've only sat through it once, I know all the bits because they've all become <laughs> infamously famous. They've now. Been memed. It's like yeah. you're tearing me apart, Lisa. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, hi, I, Mark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and there's even that self awareness in the trailer, how it like ends with him going, "Hello, doggy." Yeah, I, I mean, I think that Disaster Artist, the film, actually looks really great because, in a sense, it's obviously mocking the film, but it, it's not doing so in a mean-spirited way at all. And it actually, I think it's going to have a very interesting sort of Hollywood story that impels the whole thing, like we were saying, that the whole thing is really about people trying to move to L.A. to make it, to be successful, to be famous, to pursue art or to become something that you have seen other people aspire to and then you aspire to that um you know it, it's uh it's just a very typical hollywood tale and i think a lot of people are going to be drawn to it because he's such a fascinating figure and i think we like to see people that are fascinating figures that either succeed or fail and i don't know if you could say that tommy wiseau either succeeded or failed so i think that's what this film is going to be really interesting uh, to do and i mean franco looks fucking amazing his brother looks good. And like you say, man, there's been some fucking like Golden Globe and Oscar buzz for acting performances. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, how they've decided to sort of tackle it from this angle of kind of – I mean I think something that you know certainly you and me and I'm sure a lot of people can really sympathize with, which is you know, the desire to make something yourself and kind yep. of – you know, I, I like the fact that there's a kind of earnestness to this, that I don't feel like they're doing it just like pointing fingers and laughing at how terrible it is. Because, I mean, if you want to see something funny, you can just go look at the movie itself. You don't need right. to laugh at the fact that they, you know, I, I, I like the fact that it's kind of playing a lot of it very straight and allowing the absurdity itself to speak for itself. You know, and it's like, but it's even like stuff like I, I loved, like there's that little bit in the trailer. Where he's like, wow, you've built an exact replica of the alley outside. Why didn't you just film it in the alley? And Tommy goes, because this is real Hollywood movie. You know, and it's like, right, right. and it's, it's, it's again, it's like that thing of like somebody who's making a film that's not actually thinking about this off the basis of how you tell a story. He wants to be in a Hollywood film, right. you know. Um, and I mean, you know, for the fact that like infamously they, uh, they shot all the rooftop scenes in a parking lot where they green screen the whole thing, you know, <laughs> right. for seemingly no reason. And it's like, it's like, you know, Greg Sestero said any way that Tommy could make it 10 times harder, he would. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. And I think that Franco and Rogan and their crew are the perfect team to put this together because one of the things that they realize is they realize uh, I, I they realize what it is like and what it takes to make your own stuff because yeah. obviously Franco um, has has done that his entire career and they're kind of um, they're kind of artists if you will um, and so but they're also just kind of a crew of dudes 
right? They've got their crew of people that they work together with, and that's kind of what this film was about. What was about? It was this guy and his buddy, and they wanted to do it together. And of course, that's how it generally works. But I feel like the Franco crew and the Rogan crew are just kind of the perfect team to put this together because they understand what it's like to work in a cooperative team to try to get something done. Well, you know that like Franco's also like directed like like something like twelve or fifteen films at this point. Oh like, yeah. It's like most of them you've never fucking heard of. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I, as a as a self-described francophile, I am ashamed to say I have not seen uh, enough of them. Well, you you saw his uh, Faulkner adaptation, didn't you? Uh, he's done two now, I believe, okay. and uh, I've only seen. Um, oh God, I forget what it's called, but the one with the split screen. <laughs> uh, as I lay dying. As I lay dying. Thank you. Yeah, I saw as I lay dying. Is this so, like? Do you think this is this is his uh, his crossover into the mainstream finally as a director? I mean, we'll see, right? We'll see. We'll see what ends up happening. I feel like again, there are going to be certain films. He's always going to do something quirky and weird. He's not going to do. Uh, he's never going to be hired to do it, right? He's yeah. never going to be hired to do something that is like a, a studio type of film. That's not his thing. He's always going to make weird fucking stories. But I think here he's going to have a lot of misses because of that. You know, and then he's going to every once in a while get a hit. So, so like, just to wrap this up now, do you think that you get James Franco? Does he, does he make sense to you? Oh yeah. Yeah. I totally get him. hundred percent. He's not like, you know, so it's like, it's like, cause it, there's an interesting element in you. So, you know, you take someone like Tommy Wiseau, who's this incredibly peculiar human being. Mm-hmm. And James Franco is this character who's kind of had a certain mythology kind of like spring up around him and the fact that he's, he makes a lot of odd choices. Like, right. you know, he'll one minute be in some weird taking, like show up in like two minutes of some weird indie film. And then literally, you know, the next minute is uh, the villain in a Jason Statham film. Like he, <laughs> right. Right. He, you know, his choices don't make any, like he, he's, he's often, there's also obviously the thing of him going and, studying and getting all of these degrees while also being on taking a part on general hospital. And, you know, and it's, it's like, he, he seems to be someone who's like just whatever weirdly strikes him that morning he goes and does Yeah, out of it. It even like, there's those, there's those jokes. Like in 30 rock, there was this thing. He had this cameo where there was this running joke about, he had some weird sexual obsession with fish. Um, and then, uh, and then like in this is the end, it's like, it, it just plays it to the nth degree of this idea. <laughs> idea that James Franco is this kind of eccentric weirdo you know it's like like because I remember like uh I I remember like that there's that bit where Danny McBride goes James Franco didn't suck no dick now you now I know this wasn't a good party (laughs) right yeah I I do feel like I get him there is a there's a non-consistent logic to the way that he does things or to the choices that he makes. But I kind of get it. I, I, I feel like I understand it. Maybe that's part of the reason that I'm drawn to him is um, I actually had an ex-girlfriend make a shirt for me that was WWJFD, what would James Franco do rather than what would Jesus but do? do you- because she knew that I, I kind of viewed him as a, as a spirit animal. <laughs> Here's the thing that I kind of wonder though sometimes with him though is I wonder if he's like 
on autopilot for about 50% of the things that he does. And then right. the other 50% he shows up for. Like, it's like, I feel like he, sh- I feel like when I look at this, this feels like something he's really showed up for and taken seriously. Mm. And it's like when I watch something like 127 hours, yeah, again, I feel like he's, he showed up, he's taken it seriously. But when I watch him be like, the villain in I think it was called Homefront, the the Jason Statham like movie where Jason Statham is like moves to the south for some reason and has to fight James Franco for some reason. <laughs> I forget why. Um, I I I don't feel like he's really like I feel like he's kind of like memorized his lines, showed up, said his lines, and that was that was it. Like you know, I I don't right. feel like he's committed to that. I, I think more than anything, what Franco is committed to is he's committed to community, and so he yeah. has around him a group of friends. And so I would be willing to bet you the reason that he ends up in that Statham film is either because he's friends with the writer, producer, director, or he's friends with Statham and they've been talking about it for years. Let's work on this. And so what happens is he's a part of this playhouse. I can't remember what it's called right now in L.A. where he and like Scott Hayes and a couple of his buddies um, will put on local uh, – like theater productions because he, you know, he's a writer and stuff like that. So they put on these small like like playhouse 99-seat theater type of productions. But at the same time, all of these people that are a part of his crew are uh, – they're, they're, they're aspiring filmmakers or they are filmmakers themselves. And so I think for him, his number one commitment is to them uh, and it's com- his commitment to create from, from within side of that kind of group – uh, idea or that group that group disposition so i think that's ultimately what drives him i think what, more than anything is that he's going to create with people when it's it's interesting too because you say that and you look at this kind of like murderer's row of like actors and cameos that are in the disaster artist and you can feel that sense of community because you got okay so you got two leads are james franco and his brother dave um yeah. then you've got seth rogan uh, who's obviously part of that freaks and geeks kind of like community that that sort of sprung out of it. Then you've got yeah. Allison Brie, um, Ari Grainer, Josh Hutcherson, yeah. Jackie Weaver is in this playing playing the mom, <laughs> Academy Award nominee Jackie Weaver, uh, Zach Efron, uh, Hannibal Burris, um, Judd Apatow. Uh, Na- Jed Apatow has a cameo. Nathan Fielder is uh, is in it from Nathan for you. Sharon Stone, uh, Melanie Griffith, uh, Paul Shear, Jason Manzukas. Again, I love the fact that all of the hosts of How Did This Get Made are in this as well. Because um, mm. you got Jason Manzukas, Paul Shear, and June Diane Raphael. They're all in this. Um, you've got Kate Upton, Zoe Dutch, um, Christopher Mintz Plotz, Randall Park, uh, Casey Wilson. Uh, you got like, then you got cameos. Apparently these are, um, cameos include Brian Cranston, Zach Braff, JJ Abrams, Lizzie Kaplan, Kristen Bell, Keegan, Mike and Keegan, Michael Keyes, Adam Scott, Danny McBride. And of course, Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think more than anything, what he wants to do is, is he wants to do projects that he wants to do and work with people that he wants to work with. Bottom line. And what is it that draws him to projects? That I don't know. I think that is one – it's going to be like a combination of things. But like you say, it might seem inconsistent. But I think the the driving factor on a lot of times why he's going to be involved with the project is because it's a friend of his. Well, I, I will say that I am genuinely now really, really excited for The Disaster Artist. It's, Cannot it's, fucking it's, wait. It's one of my most anticipated films of the year, shockingly ditto. enough. Um, no, ditto. 100%. Hey! hey! 
I'm here with Ronnie Barnhart, one of the security guards here at the mall, no, who can cut. hopefully... Uh, ma'am, I'm, I'm the head of mall security. You should do that again and say it right. It was horrible! I'm Detective Harrison, Conway Police. We're gonna catch the guy that did this. Ah. What? It's clear that this pervert plans on coming back here and murdering Brandy. Oh my god! Is that gonna happen? It's gonna happen. No, it's not gonna happen. You gonna pay. Brandy, you're the only thing in this mall worth protecting. Brandy, do you have a boyfriend in your life? <gasps> Shots! Yeah! That burns so good. <laughs> oh yeah, again. You are so gorgeous. Part of me thinks that this disgusting pervert is the best thing that ever happened to me. This is my chance to be great. What have the police ever really done? Nothing good. I'm in charge of this. Dennis, you're my second in command. Humans, you guys are my infantry. When he dies, God gave me another one. Okay, awesome. Okay. Swear on my soul, I'm gonna catch this guy. Que pasa, Ramon? Quiere hablar conmigo, pero no lo entiendo, no sé en inglés. See. Scum did it. Well, what'd he say? I don't know. I don't speak Spanish. Because Austin missed out last week, he missed on his opportunity to pick this week's film, so I inflicted observe and report on him as punishment. <laughs> um, so observe and report concerns a mall cop who uh, works at a place called the Forage Ridge Mall, um, which doesn't really seem to be anywhere specific, even though it's technically... In New, it's technically shot in New Mexico, uh, and revolves around Ronald Ronnie Barnhart, <laughs> played by Seth Rogen, who makes it his mission to apprehend a streaker who has been <laughs> harassing women at the mall, including a makeup girl he is obsessed with called Anna Ferris. Mm-hmm. And the film kind of... Um, meanders in a kind of weird ramshackle way uh, somewhat around the investigation which is headed by a detective played by Ray Liotta who Ronnie wastes his time and irritates him and then kind of like the two become enemies of each other but also Ronnie Ronnie's Ronnie's relationship with his alcoholic mother his relationship with his sort of uh, the um, the underling his sort of like mall security well, I suppose he's in charge of them, isn't he? He's like the head of mall security, and then the other people are kind yeah, of yeah. Because remember, him. he's doing that interview, yeah. and he, he makes yeah, he's it. like he's he's like yeah, you fucked up. I'm the head of mall security. Do you <laughs> yeah. want to do that again? And she keeps going, and she's like, "What? You just just gonna do your job wrong like that?" And you know, <laughs> um, and uh, basically, um, he has uh, so he has some underlings. One played by uh, Michael Pena in hilarious form, and uh, also with these a Jerry, two with the Jerry curl. Yeah, and these two these two twins, and uh, of course also Jesse Plemons, um, who you know does bewildered looking very very well, um, and then yeah, kind of um, yeah, it, it's a it it kind of just keeps going from awkward disturbing interaction to the next, in which you find out Ronnie is uh, suffering from. Uh, bipolar disorder and decides to stop taking his medication which causes his behavior to become even more erratic and obsessive you find <laughs> out uh ronnie is uh somewhat racist uh somewhat somewhat, uh, somewhat misogynist <laughs> somewhat. and is is kind of a very very fucked up human being who has a really really uh somewhat distorted sense of his own importance in the world um 
And yeah, and I think genuinely, and I'm 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 not being facetious when I say this. Um, genuinely, Jody Hill, who directed it, who's also known for making a film called uh, The Fist First Way with um, Danny McBride, and also um, created the show Eastbound and Down. Uh, he kind of said that the inspiration for the film was what if Taxi Driver was a comedy. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my initial question to you is this: This podcast is called I Dig this movie yeah do you actually dig this movie or are you just I trying to really have, do are you i just really do i really like this fun? movie i really do i, I g- <laughs> genuinely genuinely i know you think that i am out to try and find ways to punish you because yeah. you're too agreeable about everything i genuinely really like this movie okay uh, i i it's hard for me to understand i'm not saying it's a bad film I don't think it's a good film or a bad film. It's just kind of if you're high or if you're in a goofy mood or if you, I don't know, want to shut your brain off for an hour and a half, it's a movie. It's there. <laughs> it's a movie. It's a movie. It was, it was 86 minutes. It <laughs> happened in front of me, yeah. and I didn't stop it from happening. Yeah, it's a movie. Um, Ray Liotta is... You know, his intimidating, badass self. Um, you get a little Aziz Ansari uh, for a minute, <laughs> who uh, Ronnie refers to as Saddam. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's got some funny bits, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's not a good movie. But- <laughs> I mean, you can enjoy it, I guess, but it's not a good movie at all. I, I think I think I, I find it fascinating because I think I find it fascinating how much it uh, sort of um, walks along the line of kind of being really, really vile while trying to, you know, sort of stay within the sort of confines of this black comedy. Right. Um, and... I, I like the way that it tries to play with shock and um, the sort of subject matters that it t- tries to tackle. And I also like I like Seth Rogen in it a lot. Like I think he, I think he's actually really good in it. And I think actually, and the thing that I thought really, um, really brings this forward for me is Seth Rogen. You know, reading an interview with Seth Rogen where he said the biggest misunderstanding people have read watching the film is they think because I'm in it, they're supposed to like me. Like Mm. they're not, this is not a film. And it's, it's, it's again, it's like, and I I actually think that's why the taxi driver comparison is apt because Travis Bickle is a horrible person. You're not supposed to think Travis Bickle is some sort of great vigilante hero. And I think there's a sort of absurdism in kind of what, what you know, kind of like Ronnie represents in American culture that I, I I think I find quite fascinating because I think he represents this inflated sense of self-importance, which I think is sort of rife within um, American culture, and it makes so much sense to me too that you set that in the mall, you set it in this facade of American I the I you know sort of American commercialism and you have this person who has this figurehead fake power who thinks that that power represents something more than it is. Right, right. You know. And I and I, I don't know there's something about it and I would I would I would by no means ever say that I think this film is flawless or perfect or anything like that, but I think it's fascinating in the way that it goes so hard for the jugular and so tries so hard to step over the line while still trying to maintain the facade of being a comedy that I just 
there's something weirdly unique about it that I, 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 I think is, I always find interesting. And you know me, I've always said, I will give a movie a lot of props for going bold. Yeah. You know? And, yeah, yeah. and this is a film that there is not much, there's not much that you can compare this to. It is it's, its no. own weird, unique thing. Well, and it's weird because didn't it come out around the same time as um, Paul Blart? Well, yeah, it came out the same year. Yeah, so I remember because they're very different. Oh, you yeah. know, Paul Blart is slapstick, Kevin James, kind of stupid comedy. And this is definitely more on the dark side. Is this an Apatow type of crew production? No, this is kind of like the other side of it because it's they kind of have crossovers. But it's more like the it's the Jody Hill, um, Danny McBride kind of world and then sort of also um david gordon green's kind of a little bit part of that crew as well but they all they're all kind of from the south they're from like south carolina i think they went to they all went to like the same film school in south carolina or something like that and they kind of like um so and and so like also um uh, eastbound and down is kind of part of that as well oh okay yeah i can if you look at it from within that context you can see the tone being Mm -hmm. much more eastbound and down yeah obviously it's not not the same in content but you can there's kind a of, deep there's a cruelty feel. to the film that i find fascinating that's <laughs> i can see i can honestly i can understand why certain people hate it and it's almost like i wouldn't right. begrudge you for hating it it's like right. in in the sim but i i think in many ways this film is something that i see has some interesting parallels with say something like pain and gain which is a film that is abrasive and, you know, sort of like, you know, and, and sort of, I think almost challenges people to, to hate. Um, and I, and I think that's, there's something, you know, you know how like people say, you know, you get like, uh, people, I, I listen to a podcast called Blank Check and, um, the sort of the pref, the premise of that is that directors, they have some sort of success and then they get a uh, blank check. They get to do their dream project. Mm. Um, and this is Jody Hill after the success of sort of, Eastbound and Down and um, the fit, the Foot First Way, which was the thing that the really super low budget film that he got made that got picked up by Adam McKay and Will Ferrell and distributed. And so this is he got given eighteen million dollars to make this film. He got he had a, a a big star in the lead, and he makes this really weird idiosyncratic dark thing that is also has just these moments of like shocking humor in it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think what's that film that you said was distributed by Adam McKay? Uh, the foot, the foot first way. See, I've never even heard of that. Uh, I have no clue what that it's is. It's where what Danny is basically. It's the thing that first made kind of Danny McBride got Danny McBride in people's attention, and it's where he essentially plays a really self deluded uh, Taekwondo instructor. Okay. <laughs> he likes the idea of a self deluded. Oh, yeah. Person with authority and power, huh? But I think there's something that's really fascinating about that within the American character, and if you want to talk about toxic masculinity and the idea of white male privilege. I mean, I I think if there was ever a film that's about that, this is kind of that film. It's about people (laughs) who clearly think they're owed or deserving of much more importance than they actually are. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I can see that. I mean, like I said, it's not a good film, but it is – it is 86 minutes. Is it 86 minutes? It's 86 minutes. It's 86 minutes of something and (laughs) – and fuck it, you might as well see it, you know? It's not like one of those ones that you shouldn't see. It's not like I, I wish I had 86 minutes back or something like that, you well, know? It was just, it was, okay, well, here, here's a question. Was this better or worse than watching Detention? 
You know what's interesting? Upon reflection, I feel like I gotta see Detention again. It's one of those films that's actually kind of stuck with me. Like, the thing about Detention I didn't get is because I just thought it was, like, all over the place, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just kind of batshit crazy, which I guess it intentionally is. Um, so, I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's not... It wasn't a bad experience. It just was kind of like, that was a movie. Okay. I just... It happened, you know, and it's almost like when you fall asleep at night, if you if you, if you fall asleep to Netflix, I know some people do, and you want to put something on in the background, and you put on like How I Met Your Mother or Gilmore Girls or something like that. I feel like you could kind of do that with Observe and Report for me, you know, it's just kind of <laughs> like... So you compare Observe and Report to Gilmore Girls. Well, it's just that it's just easy watching, you know? It doesn't take any effort. There's, you know, I didn't like walk away from it like, huh, interesting perspective on toxic masculinity or anything like that. You know, I just kind of was like, all right, so Seth Rogen got a payday. Cool, man. (laughs) Yeah, I got like he got like a big payday out of this, though. I think this was kind of like clearly something he wanted to do. Like, and 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 it's it's interesting because I don't think Seth Rogen's been a guy who's done. A lot of serious parts, but he has occasionally kind of like veered into them here and there. And I think this came around the time well, in of Green Hornet it, it, as well. Was... I think he was kind of at that point where he was trying to work out a little bit what direction he wanted to take his career in. Yeah. I actually think that he, as much as I know people find his laugh annoying or they can criticize him for his stoner demeanor, I actually think he, he's got some chops. He's got some really interesting chops. He is quite talented. And uh, you see that in particular with, what was it, Jobs? Is that what the name of the film was? Jobs, yeah. Where he played um, Steve Wozniak. Woz, yeah. And he did, uh, I thought he did a fantastic job, you know? So he can do something like that. And then, of course, he can do Pineapple Express, right? And and I kind of can find both quite enjoyable. And I think that he, he does them very well. And even in this film, it wasn't bad. You know, I mean, he's playing the fucking character very straight. He, you know, I mean, he really does believe that uh, he is playing in earnest this character who really authentically believes that he is in a position of power. Yeah. Right? There's no, there's no inauthenticity. It's not like he's trying to play power. Ronnie really does believe he's powerful. Like, he is self-deluded entirely. And um, obviously there's, you know, kind of like a a mental health thing that's going on. But he really does believe that he is powerful. So, you know, you can see that earnestness and authenticity in in the role. And for that, I give it some credit. But, I mean, I don't know, man. You know what I didn't like? And this is just tough. I used to love her. But Anna Ferris, I just, I can't. Why why do you got to shit on a woman while she's going through a divorce, man? I know, I know, I know. I, I'm sorry, Anna. Um, I hope you and your kids and your family all heal and shit like that. But you know, you know what the problem uh, is. What you, you know, Chris Pratt. He got he got a six pack and he got options. You know what's funny is um, I've actually heard some interviews. She actually had some weird eating disorder things, and she went through some body image things because he did get so fit. So she did yeah. feel like it put a lot of pressure on her. And shit, it sucks, man. I mean, yeah. celebrity couples. If you're listen. If you're going to be famous, just don't ever get married, okay? Like, just don't. Or wait until after you become famous or wait until you're in your 50s. Just don't do it, okay? Like, that's my – children, don't become actors. 
famous people don't get into relationships just don't do it but um but no for her like i don't know she she just plays so hard at being funny or over the top that i just have a hard time with it cuz you know me i like i'm really attracted to realism and i'm really attracted to comedy then that comes from good writing not over the top performances and slapstick shit unless it's like I'm watching Chaplin or something like that and it's supposed to be physical comedy, you know, or like we're watching a fucking Jackie Chan film, right? And you were talking about how that's – it's supposed to be over-the-top physical comedy, yeah. right? That's different. Buster Keaton shit, that's different. She's kind of in this in-between space where it's not like physical comedy but she's still doing like overly dramatic facial expressions and I don't know. Like I just – it just doesn't do it for me, man. I don't know. I still feel kind of weirdly though like I've met that girl. I feel like I've met Brandies in my life. And they, they yeah. and they work behind makeup counters. Maybe that's what my ultimate problem is then. Maybe <laughs> I just have have bad experiences cuz I've dated Brandy. <laughs> but like and I mean like it's it's interesting too cuz then you also have um Colette Wolf who talked about uh marriage. She's actually married to the director. Oh, um okay. But um, but I think like she's giving a a completely earnest performance that I think. Oh, wait, you now know, who's really... wait, who's she? What character is she? She's the she's the girl with the uh, bone problem who works at the Cinnabon. Gotcha. Who uh, Patton Oswalt keeps being really mean to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love Patton Oswalt. <laughs> He's great, man. I'm glad he got some in Young Adult too. But okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Charlize, no less. <laughs> I know, man. I'm so happy for him. Okay. Um, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, honestly, the performances other than Anna Ferris for me, were not bad. You know? I mean, like, Aziz isn't ever a good actor, but he's doing his Aziz thing. Ray Liotta's doing his thing. Um, I just, fuck, man. For some reason, that Anna Ferris thing, it just, it, it doesn't do it for me. Like, the movie Just Friends, I uh, I can't get into it. Um, the, the scary movie ripoffs, uh, or things, whatever they are. I mean, I don't even know what the fuck they are. I, I just, so basically Austin, you're a horrible fucking misogynist because you don't think women can do big physical comedy. That's what you're saying, Austin. God, man, maybe I am just a big asshole. No, but it's, I don't like cheesy facial expressions. I can't, I, I don't like that. It just, it doesn't do it for me. It automatically takes me out. So that's my, that's my biggest issue with the film, to be honest, was her. Other than that, I thought the film was rather, you know, lukewarm. But her, I was kind of like, oh, come on. Let's, let's not do this. I mean, she's hot as fuck, but that only goes so far with me. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, so... I mean, like, the thing that I think is, again, I feel kind of is sort of weirdly fascinating with it, too, though, is it's like, have you ever seen um, King of Comedy? Uh, the TV show? No, oh, no, no, the no. film. Oh, the, Scar- uh, Scorsese. the Scorsese film. Yeah. No, I've actually never seen it. I was thinking King of Queens. I don't know what I was thinking. No, I've actually never seen it. King of Comedy is, again, it's about a character who is completely deluded and earnestly believes everything they're doing is okay. makes complete and total sense. And I think and I think that's interesting because essentially you are watching the film from the perspective of someone who is mentally unstable and completely believes everything that they are doing makes complete and total sense. And right. you are watching these interactions completely with the people that they're talking to going – yeah, I don't know why he's fucking doing this either, but and I, and I and I think there's something fascinating about 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 how it feeds about how about the absurdism of it. Now, 
I'm not sure I think this film has a central thesis. I'm not sure I think the film <laughs> is doing anything more than kind of rattling your cage and saying, what the fuck do you make of that? But right. I don't know. I can't. It's 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 a film that weirdly I can't. I can't dismiss. I and it's funny that you've come you've come back. I I don't know what I expected you to make of this film. And in, in fact, to be honest, I had to pick this film kind of out of a hat pretty quickly. So right. I literally just kind of looked at and said and just said, oh, fuck it. What what will I pick? I'll, I'll pick um, that film. And so I wasn't even totally 100 percent prepared to list my thesis as to why I think this <laughs> film, why I like this film. Right. And I. And I, but I, I think part of it is that there is something about the fact that this film is so willing to take on these really dark, strange, weird topics and treat it and, and walk that line between tragedy and comedy in a really, really fascinating way. Because it's really funny because the first time I saw – okay, so – the film kind of ends with this really long slow motion sequence where you watch a fat streaker uh, with his with his with his dick hanging out, you know, <laughs> running around the mall while Seth Rogen gives chase to him, uh, right. and he's just about to run up to Anna Ferris when Seth Rogen pops out of nowhere and shoots him point blank. And, uh, you know, and he, <laughs> you think he's dead for like about like 20 seconds. That turns out he's just been wounded. Then Seth Rogen like picks him up and sort of takes him down to the police station so he can get credit for having, uh, for having gotten the streaker. Um, and it's, it's something that I found so shocking when I first saw it. Like it, it like that moment just shocked me like, oh my fucking God, like this film just turned like. This film just turned into, like, this deadly serious film in, like, the last, like, you know, like, second. And then it has this massive release of, like, oh, no, 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 he's, he's actually still alive. Um, and now when I watch it, every time that happens, I just burst out laughing. Because the, I don't know, the absurdism and the overreaction of it becomes intrinsically funny now. And, you know... I don't know. Maybe that makes me a bad person. I'm not even totally sure I can reconcile in my own brain whether that is a good or a bad reaction to have at that. But I think I think actually the heightened absurdism of how deluded and fucked up Ronnie is as a character does on repeat viewings weirdly start to mesh into this very this 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 very funny thing. Yeah, you know what's funny? I actually had seen this previously yeah. uh, back in my stoner days, um, more so. And so I saw this a few years back. And when he mentioned it, I was like, oh, fuck, I, I remember the trailer and I remember it coming out at the same time as Paul Blart. And I was like, oh, I don't think I ever saw it. And then I started watching it. And I was like, oh, dude, I fucking, I've seen this. I totally yeah, yeah, remember yeah. all of this. So, yeah, I, I feel like, uh, Maybe on repeated viewings, it's one of those things that I'll, I'll kind of get a different experience from. I always feel like it's interesting when, when you and I talk about a film too, You when you defend a case, and maybe it's because I'm just too damn agreeable or accommodating to uh, other other ideas. I, I'm, a, I'm easily won over, I feel like, if that makes sense. Because everything that you're saying, now I'm looking back into the film and I'm saying, man, maybe I just didn't view it from that perspective. That's kind of interesting. I can see that now. And now I kind of want to watch it again. Not tonight. I'm not going to watch it tonight. But um, at some point in my life, I will watch it. You know, if I come across it on Netflix, I'm not going to just flip past it and be like, fuck that. I'm never watching that again, you know, in like a year or two. Maybe I'll watch it on a, but it's on like, a given night. 
But it's like, I don't know what it is. Okay, so if you take, like, say something like, okay, they, they brought out this, uh, this cinematic reimagining of the TV show Chips, you know, Right, right, right. And that's trying to be some kind of lewd, gross-out comedy um, playing around with sort of, like, uh, cops and stuff like that. And it's just, like... And, you know, and, and, and guys who are like highway patrolmen who have an inflated sense of themselves. And, and right. funnily enough, also starring Michael Pena. But I'm, you know, I look at that and it just looks inane and crass and stupid. Right. There is like a weird, I don't know, there, there's a thought ticking underneath Observe and Report. I, I don't think mm. it's like, I, I don't think somebody just set out to make, I just want to make a crass comedy about mm. like a dumb security guard. Like in, in many ways, I'd say there's something more malevolent about something like Paul Blart Mall Cop because it's everything wrong with piss poor half-assed American filmmaking, mm. um, which is just about, oh, we'll laugh at this guy because he's a bit fat and incompetent, you know, but actually deep down, he's a good guy. And I what right. I what I like about this is this film never actually tries to suggest to me that Ronnie is a good guy. I think Ronnie, mm. I think I think you can feel sympathy in how deluded Ronnie is and the fact that Ronnie has had a hard life, but I don't think I don't think you're at the end supposed to say I condone what Ronnie's done. Ronnie is a good person for having gone and shot this streaker point blank, you know. His his delusions and all of these things are fully justified because he's a good human being. Like I, I think I think the film ends with you still thinking Ronnie's a fucking terrible person. You know So are you telling me that if you were putting a school course like a like a university course together on film theory, you would show uh, King of Comedy, and then you would show Observe and Report. Is this what would happen to talk about characters that... Well, it, would, uh... it, would, uh, it would depend a little bit on what I was trying to illustrate. I mean, I, I could see myself using Observe and Report as a case study to try and illustrate something about, you know, say, tone or, you know, audience perception or whether you're supposed to sympathize with a character or not. I think, you know, mm. I think there are academically valid things to use observe and report as a case study on i mean but at the same time i could also argue that there's academically valid reasons to use paul bart mall cop as a case study in something because uh studying film doesn't necessarily always mean just looking at classics it means looking at uh the form of film and how it doesn't work sometimes i mean i i remember yeah. i remember um uh when i was in film school we watched um a Robert Mitchum film, which I've forgotten about because it's very forgettable, but it was a film from like the mid fifties. Um, and it's like, he's like a surgeon who has to go on the run for some reason. I can't remember what it's called or anything about it, but that was kind of the point of why they showed us the film because mm. they were like, this is not an especially special film. This is basically what your bargain basement generic 1950s studio production looked like you know this is this is what you know so if you're if you're watching say something like oh i don't know sunset boulevard and you're thinking this is the example of what was getting made across the board in the 50s you've got a kind of diluted idea of what american cinema was but if you watch this perfectly fine not great kind of robert mitchum film this is what the vast majority of american cinema was at that time yeah. No, I, I, I can actually see that. I actually think there is a lot of merit in doing that. Um, yeah. I guess it just sort so, of offends my pretentious sensibilities sometimes. But you're, you're not wrong. That's, that's, I, that's an interesting point. But again, like I said, 
I kind of want to watch it again. I'm kind of curious. I don't think it's a terrible film. I don't think that Seth Rogen is an idiot for taking the role. It's just kind of, okay, in- interesting. <laughs> and I think it, it has a somewhat interesting kind of style to it, you know. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that he's, for the most part, kind of retreated into doing television since because he did Eastbound and Down, and then he made this TV show called Vice Principals um, with Walton Goggins and Danny McBride, okay. um, which, which I've, I've not I, yeah. watched. Um, no. But and I and I and I think I think his theme very much is the is this kind of like his his sort of central character as a director seems to be the uh, this sort of wounded masculinity um, these kind of yeah, and he's interested pe- in these authority figures too yeah exactly yeah and you know and and you know for all its faults and there are many there's a brain and an intention ticking underneath this film that I think is fascinating <laughs> and I think that's kind of what is worth sometimes exploring about film because there's plenty of movies that are just, you know, it's like, okay, say, say you take something like, I don't know, um, the King's speech. I like the King's speech. You know, it's, it's an often shit on film cause it won best movie at the Oscars, but you know, it, it, it's, it's a good one. I'm not sure the King's speech really has that much to say. I'm not really sure exploring the King's speech is really that, interesting a topic because it's a handsomely made period film with some really good performances it's it's you know it's 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 really nice put together or even yeah. like say take something like the english patient which is a film again i like i'm not really sure there's that much fascinating to really dissect about the english patient it's it's a perfectly well-made handsome you know sort of period film i think observant report is probably about 50 percent successful but mm. I think that's what's kind of fascinating about it. Interesting. Yeah. Now, do you think that Paul Blart Mall Cop is 50% successful? I, I'm going to go ahead and say I've never seen Paul Blart Mall Cop. Okay. Yeah. But it's probably I, 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 just. I saw the trailer. That's the, uh, the trailer being inflicted on me was enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it is interesting. It does have. I actually. You know how Hollywood likes to do that a lot of times, where it's like these two films will come out in the same year, the two Volcano yeah, films. Yeah, it's like the just... Armageddon, uh, Deep Impact, Volcano, Dante's Peak. White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen or whatever the fuck, you know? Uh, then they, like, had the two, they had the two Truman Capote films, uh, Capote and Infamous. Yeah, and then the when Hail Caesar came out, they had Hail Caesar, and then they also had um, the one with Brian Cranston. Oh, Trumbo. Trumbo. So they had like yeah. two films that were dealing with like the blacklist era at the same yeah. time, and um, it seems like uh, it, it is definitely duos for whatever reason. Um, this is this is like the volcano to the Dante's Peak, you Wait, know. I'm trying to remember. remember is, was Don- volcano was Tommy Lee Jones? Yeah, no, and- but I'm trying to remember. Well, because I think both those films are pretty bad. I'm not really sure. Like, <laughs> I feel but like I mean- this is maybe Armageddon to Deep Impact. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, we could do that. Armageddon to Deep Impact. That's kind of what this is. It's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a little bit more serious. It seems like it's it's less, like you said, about... Paul Blart is like Kevin James has a name, and he can get stuff funded. And so he's like, I'm just going to well, use this as a vehicle for me Paul, to... like. We Paul talk- Blart Mall Cop literally feels like two people were... Like, like the Happy Madison people were like having their like annual, uh, I don't know, brunch and blowjobs meeting or whatever it is that they do there. And and um, and then somebody said, hey, you know, it'd be really funny if like Kevin James was like, 
a cop at the mall who had like you know was like re- like thought he was really awesome you know or yeah. something like that yeah or like you know what it, what it is is it's like you know there's like a there's a gag in a season two episode of South Park which is like where they're at the mall and there's like a mall security guy it's like he's like hey hey what you doing there oh uh, nothing I'm just going to say all right move along move along it's just like and that's like a joke that's repeated a couple of times and where the mall cops like think that they're like important and stuff like that and it's like somebody said that oh let's take that and just make that 90 minutes long that's right that's paul ballart mall cop yeah yeah and i think that there is something a little bit more substantial in observe and report let's just recast anna ferris next time (laughs) anna ferris anna ferris whatever um yeah i don't know like I said, I can shit on it, but again, so so I kinda, okay. I kind of I kind of want to watch it again. Okay, okay. So so again, Austin, let's 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 look at this because in, in the grand scheme of thing, you have been pretty agreeable to my choices. Um, yes. So uh, your I think I think detention was probably the lowest ranked one yep. up until this point. Does observe and report slip below detention, or is it just does it just stay a little bit higher than that? I mean, it's a little higher than that because my my reaction to watching Detention was more like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> what? You're clearly trolling me. Like, I thought, I swear I thought you were fucking with me. I was like, there's no way you like this film. Um, He's got a new film co- that's uh, premiered at TIFF as well. I actually, it actually looks kind of interesting. It's produced by Eminem. Yeah, I actually kind of want to, I want to see it. It looks interesting. Um, whereas this film, I didn't, even have that level of negative affectivity to it. It was just kind of my eyeballs are watching a story (laughs) and that's kind of what it was. So it was very lukewarm in my reception of it. Whereas detention, it was much more like, all right, now you're just taking the piss. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was my fault that that left. Definitely. I believe every man has a path laid out before him. This has been a magical evening. My path is a righteous one. I think I need a mint or something. I accept you. I have been chosen to be the protector. Please don't tase me, man. The world has no use for another scared man. Right now, the world needs a hero. No need to thank me. I'm just a guy with a gun. (laughs) Okay, so I think... Yeah, this is proof that I can occasionally shake Austin to his core and, you know, uh, find things he doesn't agree with. Um, so, yeah. uh, so oh, okay, now, now I'm a little bit worried because, like, I've, I feel like I've given fuel to the fire and Austin has, you know, full reason to try and take it out on me next week. Uh, I, thought about, I thought about just disqualifying you from having a choice this week um, because, uh, <laughs> because you missed an episode. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be charitable and, and let, you, uh, let you have a choice. So, Austin, what are we watching next week? Man, it's football season, and so I was super tempted 
to go with one of my favorite football films when I was a kid called Necessary Roughness. You ever seen Necessary Roughness? I've actually never seen Necessary with, Roughness. With Scott Bakula? It was on like, I think it was on like Netflix for ages as well. Probably, but I decided not to. But nevertheless, when I was thinking about my choice, because I wanted to do that, I was thinking Scott Bakula, Quantum Leap, and then I thought about Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap, and I was like, oh my god, he was in a movie in the 80s that was one of my favorite lame movies called Bonsai Runner. Have you ever seen Bonsai Runner, Kier? I have never even fucking heard of this film. (laughs) It's basically about how uh, a bunch of rich people who race around in the desert in Ferraris and Lamborghinis, and Dean Stockwell plays a sort of police officer whose brother, I believe, was killed from one of these really fast race cars. And they're called bonsai runners. And this, the race is called the bonsai run, I believe. And if you're a runner, then you're one of these like really rich people that race. And so Dean Stockwell's brother was like killed from one of these races. And he goes to try to shut down the race. And it's a very interesting 80s film. <laughs> Are we going to be even, even able it. to find this movie? Oh, we will find this movie. We will find it on YouTube or we will find it on Amazon. We will find Bonsai Runner. Directed by John G. Thomas, who also did like Tin Man and Arizona Heat. And apparently Bonsai Runner, according to Wikipedia, was the top selling non-studio video in the first year of its release. So it was relatively popular. And Arizona Heat, another film that John Thomas made, was also pretty popular. So in the 80s... These were like films that I don't think they achieved any sort of acclaim or stature in the um, the sort of canon of top films, but they were kind of popular when they came out. And for whatever reason, we had Bonsai Runner, Bonsai Runner on VHS, and I used to watch it all the time. Well, you, well, you so. could be you could be proud and knowing that you've managed to pick a film that I've never fucking heard of, and not only that, I've never fucking heard of anything else this director's ever made either. <laughs> yeah. No, man, I'm looking forward to it. Bonsai Runner. All right, so in uh, the meantime, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. Uh, send us a message. Tweet Austin. He's probably better to tweet at than me because I don't really pay attention to Twitter. Um, Austin yeah. underscore Hayden. Austin underscore Hayden. Hit me yeah. up. Get it. Get in touch with us. We always like to hear from people. And, uh, yeah. Um, we will, as I said, sorry for the late posting of this episode, but we will be back to normal next week. Yep. And, um, in the meantime, yeah, uh, that's us done with the podcast. I know. Do you want to plug, do you want to plug some of your new shit? No, not particularly. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I, I currently, um, the, uh, content creator for, uh, for FUBAR Radio in the UK, so if you, like, fancy looking at memes you know i i basically make memes for a living at the moment yeah, and so check check out fubar radio you can, we got some hip-hop open mics uh we got um i got a show called high sports news where two guys get stoned and watch uh and talk about football so yeah so uh head over <laughs> to fubar radio on facebook and uh yeah um it's a radio station with plenty of cool shows on it so uh check it out sick man yeah and if you want you can check out some work that i've done on the wisecrack youtube channel i did a video on the philosophy of christopher nolan and one on the philosophy of the film logan as well as a couple of uh 
like analyses, if you will, of films uh, Django Unchained and then Guardians of the Galaxy two. They're kind of oh, like, I kind of weirdly feel like almost like I had a little part in that Logan video. As you well. absolutely like, did. Yeah. You 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 pointed me to uh, what is it? Six Guns and uh, Six Guns and, and Society. Westerns. Six Guns. Six and Guns and Society. Yeah, Six Guns and Society. So, but yeah, check that shit out. The second part of the Nolan video should be coming out any day now. Other than that, enjoy Bonsai Runner, motherfuckers. (laughs) 